0: And our text for this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, completing and finishing our study in Luke's gospel today. Hear now God's holy word. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we give you thanks for our resurrected Lord and Savior who by his life has given us life in this new creation on this other side of the cross. We praise you that your word is strong and powerful and goes out and it changes lives and hearts and minds and that with the power and the glory of the resurrected Jesus, you are transforming the earth. And so Father, thank you for allowing us to be part of this today. And so transform us as we put ourselves under your word and submit ourselves to it. Deliver us from all anxieties, clear our minds of all other concerns, and may we hear your word speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. People of God, have you ever thought maybe long walks are good mental therapy? I'm not saying good walks are good exercise. They are. Uh, I I know that they get your heart rate up. Long walks do. Good, uh, vigorous walks. But is it possible that that walks do more than simply uh, get your heart rate up and get your body moving? Uh, A few months ago, a minister friend of mine shared his observations on long walks. It's pretty interesting stuff. This guy's kind of a, a uh, uh, amateur philosopher, and, and he was just talking about the, the therapeutic nature of the walk. And just think about this for a minute. Uh, um, Americans drive everywhere. We we take very few walks, and when we walk, uh, we we're walking the dog. We're not walking with other humans. Ordinarily, we take very few walks together. I, I know some of you make a habit of doing that. And that's wonderful. But but as generally speaking, when we go somewhere, we drive there. We take few walks, and this may be. He was thinking one contributing factor to our overwhelming anxiety and mental distress in in developing countries and in the pre-modern world people walk they walk everywhere they walk all the time they walk together and and by walking together and and taking time to get somewhere and by by conversing and singing as they walk there is a there's a kind of a uh, camaraderie that we don't develop and we don't we don't possess uh, outside of this, and so in developing countries they exhibit very few of the kinds of disorders that we suffer from, and though they may lead much more distressing lives, they may lead lives of of, of near uh, poverty or just barely getting by. Uh, they they don't suffer from the kinds of disorders that we suffer from. And, and this is, my friend pointed this out. He gave one striking example of how people processed the horrors of war in previous centuries and in previous generations. War, as you know, I mean, you've seen the Mel Gibson movies, right? You know, war in the ancient world was, was brutal. War in the Middle Ages was, was nightmarish. It was hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat where you look your enemy in the eye as you fight him to the death. There was maximum potential for psychological trauma on the battlefields of the ancient world and of previous history. But men traveled someplace to fight, usually on foot, they fought their battles, and then they took the long walk back home processing their thoughts and processing their trauma, their fears together as they walked over several days. They had time to work through the, the, the trauma that they had experienced. When you fast forward to World War I or World War II or even the Korean War and certainly the Vietnam War and, and our conflicts in the Middle East, the speed of modern travel takes you from a very civilized, comfortable space to a, to a theater of conflict rather quickly. And in that theater of conflict, men experience these horrors for many months. And then you're back home very quickly, and you're expected to reintegrate into normal life without much space in between. Such a sudden, stark contrast. And it's in the, in the days and the months and the years after World War I that we start to start to understand. We see the shell shock returning from the, the trenches of World War I, or the so-called basket cases. That's their word, not mine. They were basket cases, literally, who came back from World War I. In later years, we learn about something called post-traumatic stress disorder. And perhaps some of that is due to the nature of modern warfare, the horrible nature. But, but perhaps also we aren't built to withstand the sudden jolt from, from horror to normal life. Maybe the ancients had it right. Maybe previous generations had it right. There's something healing. There's something therapeutic. There's something mentally uh, uh, healing about the long walk home after horror and trauma. And in Luke 24, I bring this up because in Luke 24, we have the story of a couple of disciples who are taking the long walk home after experiencing great extremes over the past few days. Uh, there, there was a lot to process. Uh, since Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the people were shouting Hosanna, and they were waving the palm branches at him. And they went from that elation, and that joy, and that hope in the promise of the Messiah, to Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his uh, brutal uh, subjugation to the, to the beating and, and the, the embarrassment of his treatment at the hands of the temple guards, to his mockery of a trial, to his uh, public shame as the people cry out, crucify him, he's an innocent man, to his crucifixion, to his burial, now, all of this, all of this over the past few days, it's, it's just like a, a whiplash effect if you're close to Jesus and if you're following him. Not knowing and, and not believing or not understanding, as many of the disciples didn't understand the very clear promises that Jesus made regarding his imminent resurrection. Most of his disciples gave up hope. Even those very closest to him, Peter went back fishing. They just, they just dissipate. They thought it was all over. They thought... The last three years are a waste. They're an embarrassment. It's it's all a big shame. And then, to their shock and to their confusion, they start hearing these reports. Jesus starts appearing to his closest companions in little groups. Not everyone all at once at first. Just a couple here and a couple over there and a few over there. Jesus goes around. He visits the women and he shows himself to the disciples and and then to Peter gradually. Now Luke uses most of this last portion of his gospel to describe the the journey of a couple of disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. Emmaus was a town just seven miles north of Jerusalem. And it appears that these followers of Jesus are just going home. What, What do you do after this great big confusing horrible event? You start walking. You you sort it out. You think through it. You think through it together. You you process it by talking about it and walking. That's what you do. You also get some space between you and Jerusalem. Jerusalem right now is still swelling with pilgrims from the Passover. It's like a powder keg. It's like a, 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 a pressure cooker of, of all this stuff going on. And right into the middle of that, you had this, this horrible thing with Jesus. And so if, if you're smart, if you're thinking clearly, you don't want to be there when the uh, Roman tanks start rolling through. You know, the, the Roman army start coming through town. You don't want to be there. You want to get out. So the wonderful part for, <laughs> for these disciples, as they, as they walk back, as they're heading back out of Jerusalem, is that someone's going to join them. The story begins on that very same day as the resurrection. We see in verse 13, as I read just a minute ago, uh, this was the same day. Behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. This is the same day we read about last Sunday morning. It's the day of the resurrection. They were traveling to a village called Emmaus, and they talked together of the things that had happened. While they're walking on the first day of the week, this very first Easter Sunday, they're joined, we find, by Jesus. Now, now, who are these disciples? Out of all the people that Jesus could appear to, out of all the people that Jesus could make himself known to, on the first day of his resurrection, who are these special disciples? We only have one name. Uh, We know one of them is named Cleopas. We don't get the other's name in Luke's Gospel. The church father Eusebius wrote that Cleopas was Joseph's brother. Joseph, the father of Jesus, Cleopas, according to the church father Eusebius, Cleopas was Joseph's brother. That would make him Jesus's uncle. Well, that's a that's an extra biblical source, so we can dig a little bit further, and we can say in in John's Gospel we read about the three women at the foot of the cross uh, with with Jesus. There, there was Mary, his mother. There was Mary Magdalene, and there was Mary, the wife of Cleopas, the sister of Mary. Now there were three Marys: Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the sister of Mary. Does that does that make sense? Oh, wait, she was Mary the wife of Cleopas. Now, if, if the church historian was right, and Cleopas was Joseph's brother, then that would make this other Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus' sister-in-law, right? So, could it be, is it possible that these two disciples on the way to Emmaus are Jesus's uncle, Cleopas, and his aunt, Mary? Is that possible? And, and if they are, if this is the same woman who is at the foot of the cross, who now confused at all the things that have happened, is trying to get away from it all and, and hang it all up, you can understand why Jesus comes to them personally. So that the image of Jesus on the cross is not the last image in her mind, not the last memory she has of him, but also to encourage them. To encourage them in this, that the little boy that they watched grow up, who became the man that they put their faith in as the Redeemer of Israel, he didn't die in vain. He didn't throw his life away, but he is, in fact, more than they ever thought that he was. And so Jesus joins them on the way, and he says, Well, what are you talking about? Why are you so sad? Well, they don't recognize him at first. Luke says their eyesight is restrained. They, they don't see. For whatever reason, they're blind to the fact that it's Jesus who is in front of them, right there with him. Now, Maybe it was because he had changed so much. Maybe he looked younger or more perfect. We don't, we don't know what a, a, a resurrected man looks like. We don't, we don't know that, a glorified man. We don't, we don't know exactly. But remember also when Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in the garden, she didn't recognize him either when he first appeared to her. So for whatever reason, they're not making the connection. They don't think if it is his uncle and aunt, they're not making that connection that he is their nephew. And so when he asks them, why are you so sad? They answer with so much incredulity. They say, what are you talking about? Why are we so sad? Where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Don't you know the things that have been going on in Jerusalem? Jesus answers, what things? Now, Jesus asks what things, not because he doesn't know, obviously, but he wants them to say out loud. He wants to hear them say what they think is happening, to help them work through it, to help them articulate what they think is an accurate articulation of these events. How often does telling somebody what you're thinking help you work through it? How, How often does does talking through your thoughts help you grapple with things and work on them? Have you ever started trying to tell somebody what's on your mind before it even makes sense to you? Like something happens or someone says something and you're, you're talking to someone else. And you're saying, I got to tell you about this, but I'm so confused. But in the process of talking about it, it starts to make sense. How often have you prayed that way? Have you tried to pray without even really knowing what you're supposed to be praying for, without even knowing what you're supposed to be asking for? You just start talking to the Lord. And before you really know what you need, before you really know what your problem is, as you pray, the Holy Spirit organizes your thoughts and makes things clear, and, and reminds you of scripture that you know, and it begins to shape your thoughts and your words. Well, that's what Jesus is asking them to do. He's asking them, uh, talk to me. Say out loud the things that you don't understand. They say, you asked what things we're, we're concerned about, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet mighty in deed and word. Jesus not only did great things, but he said great things. He taught great things. These authoritative deeds and words, Cleopas is saying, made Jesus something altogether different. But then Cleopas reveals what his confusion is right in the middle of this. He reveals why he's so um, out of sorts with these events. He said, they crucified him but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And you see the disconnection, the, the faulty train of thought going on there? I'm going to read it again. He says, they crucified him, but we thought he was going to redeem us. What that means in his mind, he was making no, no connection whatsoever between the redemption that Jesus was bringing and his crucifixion. These two things didn't have anything to do with each other. They, they, they couldn't see how the crucifixion could accomplish their redemption. Now, in the middle of all this, he says, you know, there's some stories about the, 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 the you know, the empty tomb, and they saw some angels, and some of the apostles said the, the tomb was empty, and Jesus' body was nowhere around, but, but none of this makes sense to them. And so what, what is their response to all of this confusion? Just get out of town. Just get away. Uh, they, they don't stay around long enough to have their questions answered. So Jesus begins to clarify things for them. And I read it just a moment ago, but hear it again. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, oh foolish ones, he corrects them. He rebukes them. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So he's gonna take the redemption that they were hoping for and he's going to take the crucifixion that they know happened. He's gonna join them together. He's gonna say, these things are related. This is how this all fits together. And how does he do it? He beginning at Moses and all the prophets expounded to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's gonna help them look at all that God has done and all that God has said. He's gonna help them look at all that Jesus has said and done through the lens of the Hebrew scriptures. He's gonna, he's gonna help them see what's going on so that all that God has done and said relates to Jesus and all that Jesus has said and done relates to the Hebrew scriptures. It's like they've been looking through a pair of binoculars backwards. You ever do that as a kid? You kind of flip it around and everything's so tiny. And we're looking at, you know, this land and this this city and, and Israel and and it's just us and our people and our relationships to God and to each other. But Jesus turns the binoculars around and say, look, there's a whole big world. There's a whole huge uh, cosmic purpose that God has uh, for you and what he's accomplishing and what he's done through me. So uh, everything that's happened is for the good of the whole world. Jesus expounds to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They're walking along the road and Jesus gives them a masterclass in the theology of the Old Testament. He gives them all of the symbols and all of the pictures and all the, all the colors and everything comes alive as he walks with them. Can you imagine what he might have said? You know, let's start with Genesis. You know the bloody animal hides that, that God put on the backs of Adam and Eve after they sinned at the garden? That was a picture of me. That was all about me. You know the ark? Let's talk about the ark for a minute. The ark, which was... Salvation from a world that was under judgment, and Noah and his family went into the ark and they were spared. Yeah, I'm that ark that, that ark is about Messiah. Everything. He goes through Abraham and Joseph, and he goes through the stories of David and Moses and Joshua, Judges, Boaz, Samuel, David, Solomon, the kings, the prophets, the Psalms. He goes through all of it. He goes through the, the, the tabernacle and the temple and everything that God did for them. He says this was all pointing to Messiah. And this is why When you and I read the Old Testament scriptures together, I don't ever want to get caught into just saying, you know, here's the story about David, so be like David here. Or here's the story about Samson, so better not be like Samson over here. I think there's this tendency to to moralize everything in the Old Testament, where when we study the scriptures together, I always want to dive into those symbols because I want to show you Jesus in every one of those stories. I want you to see how they point to our redemption in Jesus, and that's, that's what we do in the Old Testament together, and we want to be sure that we continue to do that we don't understand Jesus fully unless we understand the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what Jesus is doing here with these disciples. He teaches them and all the way until evening when they get near Emmaus, he says, well, I I better get going. And they beg him to stay with them. It's getting dark and they want to know so much more. They're hungry, but they still don't know who he is. He's, He's doing all this and he still doesn't, they still don't know who he is until he sits down with them at supper. And suddenly they, suddenly they realize, suddenly it all becomes clear. I want to pick up from verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone on farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they arose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things which had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposing that they had seen a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So, here is Jesus successively revealing himself even more to, uh, to these disciples and to his people. But before he does that, he sits down and he eats a meal with these two disciples. Look how Luke describes the supper. What did he do? He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Does that order sound familiar? It should. We do it every Lord's Day, don't we? What, what was Jesus doing here? He was giving them his, 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 the bread that was a symbol of his body. There's a liturgical order here, and when he does this, they see. Their eyes are opened. They receive the word, and he was preaching to them all day. And when they receive the sacrament, their eyes are open. So he gives them not just word, but he gives them sacrament. You need both, by the way, right? You need both word and sacrament. You take away the word. If you just have the sacrament, what do you have? Well, you get really superstitious really quick. It's like magic bread and magic wine if you don't have the word. You get all these silly ideas about it. You need both word and and sacrament. Take Take away the sacrament and you just have the word. Well, what do you have there? Well, it's very easy to have this cold, dead intellectualism. Well, Jesus gives them both Bible and bread, and when he gives them the bread, their eyes are open. Now, where else in the Bible does somebody have their eyes opened after they eat something? They eat something and then their eyes are opened. Well, this happened way back in the garden, didn't it? When Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit that God, God forbade them to take this fruit and their eyes, their eyes were opened. Jesus here is undoing that ancient meal. Uh, think about this for just a minute. This is the eighth feast mentioned in detail in Luke's Gospel. There are lots of meals talked about in Luke's Gospel. Uh, As I said at the beginning of our study, I said you feel like uh, Jesus in this Gospel is just on one big progressive feast. He's just a big progressive dinner going from place to place because there's always this table fellowship. But there are eight meals described uh, specifically with detail in Luke's Gospel and this is the eighth. This is the eighth meal. This is the eighth meal which also happens on the eighth day. This is the first day of the new creation. This is Sunday. This is the the day of of, uh, resurrection. So all the arrows are flashing. Everything is pointing to a new creation and the putting away of the old creation. And so with this meal, Jesus is in effect replacing the first meal of the Bible. Think back to that first meal you read about in the Bible. A man and woman eat together. The first meal of the old creation And this is a meal that brings death. This is a meal that brings condemnation. This is a meal that brings separation. Now the first meal of the new creation is a meal that brings life. It brings us near. It brings uh, uh, forgiveness and redemption, not condemnation, not death. Why? Who's at the head of this table? Not the first Adam. The second Adam is at the head of this table. And you notice the precise way that, that Luke speaks about what Jesus did with the bread. It sounds very similar to what Eve did with the fruit back in Genesis 3. What did Eve do? You remember? She saw the fruit, she took it, she ate it, she gave it to Adam. There's a very uh, liturgical order to what Eve does with the fruit in the garden. Well, uh, Jesus reverses all of that. And and now just as Adam and Eve's eyes were opened in the garden, so so now these disciples' eyes are opened when Jesus gives them the bread. The end result of that first meal was shame. The end result of this is uh, joy and elation and and knowledge of who the Lord Jesus is. Now Jesus is with this new man and this new woman. He's feeding them. And they're not grasping forbidden food like, uh, like Adam and Eve did. Now their eyes are opened in a new light and life as they see the resurrected Jesus. And what this meal signifies is that the exile from the garden is over. The separation from God has ended. Now God has come near to you. Adam's sin has been paid for. The old creation is passing away. The curse is lifted. This is the beginning of a new creation, a new world. So you need to get up from Adam's table and you need to come sit down at Jesus' table. That's the invitation. Get up, leave that table, and come over here and sit at this table. You also see in the fact that that Eve's uh, order of taking the fruit and, and, and giving it to Adam, that had a liturgy. And now Jesus replaces that with a, with a new liturgy. This is so much about what submission to the Lord Jesus is all about. It's, it's about replacing old dead habits with new life-giving habits. That's what, that's what we're all about, right? We're, 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 we're putting away the things that kill us, the, the, the habits and the liturgies of death, and we're embracing the liturgy of life. And then as if to punctuate the point, Right after he gives them the bread and right after their eyes are open, Jesus disappears. He vanishes right in front of them. And if, and at that first moment alone, you can just imagine, I, well, I can't just imagine. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be eating with somebody and they're just, they're gone. And do you kind of, what do you say now? (laughs) You just kind of look around the room and they, they say, what they do say is, yeah, I knew something was different about that guy. Didn't our hearts burn within us while we were walking and he was opening up the scriptures to us on the road? They, they, they say, yeah, we knew, we knew something was going on there. In that moment, all of their despair turns to joy, and they see that everything that had happened to Jesus was according to everything that the prophets had said would happen. Indeed, the whole arc of history has come down to this point. Everything God has done has come to to fulfillment in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. They see all this, and it all comes together for them. And they see now, of course, it couldn't be any other way but this way. It's so perfect. So now, they had seen for themselves the risen Jesus. So now, even though it's getting close tonight, <clears throat> they get up, and that very hour, they ran back to Jerusalem. Seven miles. Back to Jerusalem. <laughs> he runs seven miles. Uh, they're excited. They found the apostles, and they said, The Lord is risen indeed. This is true. We believe you. They lend their voices to those testifying to the reality of the resurrection. And when just that very afternoon... Just a few hours before this, they were despondent and, and heartbroken. So we might ask the question, why does Luke spend so much real estate, so much precious time and effort on this story at the end of his gospel? On the surface, it, it seems like such of a quaint, out of the way kind of story. Sure, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but what does it lend to the gospel as a whole? Well, this story ties up a number of threads that Luke has been following through the gospel. Remember. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, there's another man and woman searching for Jesus, right? Way back at the beginning, there's another man and woman thinking that they lost him. Joseph and Mary take Jesus up to Jerusalem for the feast, and he stayed behind when they left. And how long did they look for him? They looked for him for three days. They were worried to death about him. They were thinking their boy was gone, when in fact, they should have known where Jesus was. They found him in the temple among the rabbis. He was about his father's business. So no need to worry, no need to fear. And then Jesus chides his parents a little bit for their folly. He says, don't don't you know where I'm supposed to be? Don't you know where I am? And now Luke ends on a similar note. A man and a woman, another three days of worry, wondering what happened to Jesus. They're worried sick when in fact they should have known where Jesus was. Jesus chides them in almost the same way that he chides his parents. He says, foolish ones ought not the Christ to have suffered these things. Didn't you think I'd be about my father's business? In both cases, what we see is that those who are closest to Jesus didn't fully understand what he was about. They, they didn't understand who he was and what he was there to do. That... That this is how much he exceeded all of Israel's hopes and expectations. Not even those nearest to him could quite explain what he was doing. That's how how much he broke all of their categories and exceeded all of their expectations. One more thread that Luke wraps up here is the Exodus in Egypt theme. Remember that the Gospel of Luke ends with a new Herod killing baby boys. Herod, I'm sorry, a new Pharaoh rather, a new Pharaoh killing baby boys. Herod has transformed Judea into a new Egypt. And if Judea is a new Egypt, we need a new Moses. We need a new Exodus. Jesus comes and provides that exodus out of this Egypt. In fact, what did Jesus say to Elijah and Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration? He talked to them about what? He talked to them about his exodus, which he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And now that exodus has begun. Now we're on our way out, uh, our way out of Egypt. Now Jesus, our new Moses, is leading us out of the old creation into the promised land, into the, into the new creation. What did Moses ask for? Uh, from Pharaoh. He just wanted to go out, leave leave, and go feast before Yahweh in the wilderness. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's leading his people out and there they go feast outside of Jerusalem. The exodus has begun. Uh, God wanted to pull his people away to speak to them at Mount Sinai. Jesus pulls these people away and they go to Emmaus and he speaks to them out there. He preaches all of the scriptures to them outside of outside of Jerusalem on the way out. So this Exodus theme continues, and then Luke is gonna pick right back up at the beginning of Acts, and he's gonna paint the rest of this picture of this new Exodus and the new conquest of the land in, uh, in the book of Acts. What Jesus did with these two apostles, now he does with the rest. I'm gonna finish reading uh, the Gospel of Luke and just make one or two short uh, comments, and we'll end there. So uh, we, we ended at verse 40. When Jesus had said, you know, behold my hands and feet, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm concerning me. So, so he gives to the rest of the apostles what he just gave to the two disciples on the road. And he opened their understanding, just like he did theirs, that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, when he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Uh, The end of the Gospel, uh, we find ourselves where we started. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we were with Zechariah in the temple, right? At the end of the gospel, we are back in the temple. At uh, the temple, though, it's been, the meaning has been transformed, and, and we have a new relationship to the temple because of Jesus. So several events are, are covered here, and, and we may circle back here in a few weeks when we uh, come back and celebrate the ascension. But one interesting scene here is where Jesus eats fish, and a honeycomb with his disciples. Everything Jesus does is full of meaning. Jesus doesn't do anything just to do it. Everything is on purpose. Why fish and a honeycomb? Well, fish of course reminds them of their commission to the Gentile nations to go across the seas to be fishers of men. Honey, what does honey always remind us of? Honey reminds us of the promised land. And now uh, this is a reminder that the whole world is your promised land. And you not only taste and see that the Lord is good, and the word is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, but now take that sweet word everywhere you go. Now, think about, just for a moment, how Jesus spends these last days uh, before his ascension, the days after his resurrection. What does he do? He appears here and there to a few disciples. He eats with them. He talks with them. As they walk down the road, as they sit around tables, Jesus is sharing his life with them. He spends the days before he ascends to the Father, showing his people what new creation life looks like. In other words, here are the things I want you to keep doing. Here's, here's what this life looks like. These are the things that are really going to upset the Pilots and the Herods and the Caesars. Here are the things that I want you to do. These are the things that are going to bring them all to nothing. These are the things that are going to uh, make you take over the world. What is it? Well, I want you searching the scriptures together. I want you sharing your lives together. I want you eating together. I want you walking together. And I want you to talk about my life. I don't want you to talk about the resurrection. I want you to talk about this new creation and this kingdom. Since we joined Luke back in January, when you and I started back in the gospel, we have been on a long walk with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's where we picked up. Embedded in this gospel is a call for every one of us to come and walk with Jesus together, to walk with him, to hear him talk to us, to be fed by him and to live together in this new creation. Especially if you, like Uncle Cleopas or Aunt Mary, especially if you are doubtful, if you're confused, if you have been rocked, by events beyond your control. If your world has been turned inside out or if things just don't add up or if you can't make sense of what God is doing in your life, if it's been a long time since your heart burned within you, if it's been a long time since you had a real comfort of knowing the Lord, that peace that passes understanding is, is not something that you have a regular familiarity with. What's the call? The call is come. Come walk with Jesus. Walking is indeed therapeutic it, it's by the way it's, it's good for your marriage it's good for your friendships metaphorically we talk about we're, we're walking together we're agreeing together when you walk together you're both facing the same way right you're you're going the same direction you're seeing the same things you're encountering the same obstacles together agreeing we're going to walk this way or we're going to walk this way together you you aren't sitting down across from each other in an adversarial position, right? You're not, you're not opponents. When you're walking together, you're side by side, going forward together. There's a harmony, there's a unity, there's a deference when you walk the same speed. Maybe somebody's got to walk a little faster. Maybe somebody's got to slow down a little bit. There's this, there's this harmony and unity and, and togetherness and concord that comes from walking together. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants you to walk with him. That's what we talk about, right? We say, we ask you, are you walking with the Lord? Or we say, how is your walk with the Lord? We use that language because the Bible uses that language, right? Deuteronomy 8, observe the commands of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and fearing him, right? Romans 13, let us walk in decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, but not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, walk together in peace. So if you have questions, if you have Doubts and fears and challenges. Okay, okay, okay. Walk. Come on. Let's take a walk. I got it. Let's walk. The call Jesus extends to his disciples here is come, make a break with the old world, the old world of sin, of death. Get off the road of the first Adam the road of darkness and blindness and join Jesus on this Exodus journey out of the old world. Come stand up, walk out of that old world and be a part of the new way, the new world where the resurrected man gives you the promise of resurrection life yourself, where he feeds you a new kind of bread along the way, a bread that we're going to share together in just a few minutes. Come on, walk, get up, walk, walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to uh, continue to fill us with your Holy Spirit every day so that we can be strengthened unto life. And thank you for the resurrection life of our Savior Jesus. We pray that we would continue to follow his example and what he showed and did throughout this whole gospel that we have studied over these last many months. Father, we depend upon your mercies also when we stumble and when we fall and when we come so short of what our Savior has shown us. Father, lift us up in your mercies. Father, give us grace now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.